0: circumstances. And so join me in Esther chapter three. I will read a section from this chapter uh, and then we'll turn and read a section from chapter seven as well. So Esther chapter three uh, verses one to eleven. Hear now the word of the Lord. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set. in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. For he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast poor. That is, they cast lots after Haman, or before Haman, day after day. And they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the king of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws. So that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king let it be decreed that they be destroyed. I will pay ten thousand talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business. That they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite the son of Hamadatha the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. And then turn over to chapter 7 with me. I'm going to begin reading in verse 7 and read to the end of the chapter. A lot happens between chapter 4 and 7, but we are picking up the action after Esther, Queen Esther, has exposed uh, the plot of Haman to the king as a plot against her people. And so let's pick up in the middle of that action in verse seven of chapter seven. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman had fallen on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Herbona one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house 50 cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they, came, they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai, Then the wrath of the king was abated. Let's pray. Father, would you help us as we come to this uh, story, a story that has many disturbing elements, a story of of danger, um, of threat and of death. Uh, We come to stories like this in the Bible, and um, we are frankly often confused as to why they're here and what you want to say to us through them. But we come trusting that these are good gifts from you, uh, that your wisdom is here, your life is here, and you have given to us these stories so that we can know you, so that we can know how to live in response to you and to what you have done. And so would you help us now? Uh, Would you give us clarity? Would you give us uh, the ability uh, not only to conceptually understand what's happening Uh, But more than that, would you give us the ability to receive your message and be changed by it? And we pray in Jesus name. Amen. Last week set the stage uh, for this great drama in the book of Esther. And we found God's people in a very threatening situation. the, The dangerous environment of unchecked human appetite. This week. Onto that stage that has been set steps our antagonist, Haman. And you're supposed to boo at that point. (laughs) In in the festival that remembers the events of this book, they always read, the the Jewish people always read the story of, of Esther, and whenever Haman's name is mentioned, everyone boos and hisses. He is a true black hat villain. Uh, In in many of our modern stories, our villains, they they tend to have backstories uh, that make us empathize with them, make them seem not so bad, understandable why they do the things they do. Not so with the book of Esther. Uh, This man is evil with a face and a name. And there's a tradition within Christian teaching of treating Haman as the perfect case study For the sin of pride. You need to understand in the Christian tradition, pride isn't one sin among many. Pride is like the godfather of the sin family. Pride is the shadowy power behind everything that happens. And so I'm going to stand in that tradition this morning, that tradition of teaching about pride using the story of Haman. And we're going to look at his narrative arc in the book of Esther. And we are going to apply it to our pride. And so you are going to want to apply this sermon to everyone else. That's going to be your tendency. That's my tendency as I think about this topic as it is embodied in the person of Haman. Because understand, I'm asking you to admit that you have something in common with a man who plotted genocide. So I understand why you want to apply this sermon, this text to everyone else. I want to do the same. But I'm going to ask all of us this morning to resist that tendency. For our own good, for the good of those around us, I'm going to ask you to resist the tendency to look around you and be open to looking within you. And what God might have to say through this story about your own struggle with pride. About my own struggle with pride. So, pride in two parts. Destructiveness and destruction. First of all, pride's destructiveness. If we're going to understand the results of this particular sin, we need to see its nature. And as with most evils, math is involved. Can you see Haman doing the calculations? Can you see him running the numbers? He is elevated to the highest position of privilege and power in the land outside of the king. But he runs the numbers, and he comes up with a deficit. He still has a deficit of honor, of significance, of status, of worth. He looks around, and with all that he has, he still sees the one man who won't bow and do homage to him. Now, I don't know why Mordecai didn't bow. He is not resisting idolatry. We do need to understand that this bowing wasn't a worship. It was more like a salute in the military. This was a very appropriate social way of of showing deference to those who had authority, uh, to uh, those who had a particular status. Many cultures today still use a bow as a part of showing deference. And there's nothing wrong with that. So Mordecai isn't resisting idolatry. I don't know why he chose not to bow. As we'll see, there might be a historical reason in just a moment. But whatever Mordecai's reason is for not bowing, Haman's response reveals that he was concerned with more than just social decorum. Because this personal slight, becomes a plan for ethnic cleansing. This one man who won't show Haman the respect that he wants becomes a plot to to destroy an entire race of people. That's a little bit out of proportion, isn't it? Why? Why does Haman respond in such a drastic way to this personal slump? Well, because like his king, he had an insatiable appetite. He had a deficit as he ran the numbers of his life. He never could quite come up with enough honor, with enough status, with enough personal worth. You see. That's the nature of pride. Pride is an unsolvable equation. Pride is an unsolvable equation. We all need affirmation. We all want affirmation. That is a basic human desire, and it's not bad. We were made for honor. Psalm 8 says that God... Created humanity just a little lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor. Those two words are most often used of God himself. Glory and honor. We were made for that. We were made for significance, desiring affirmation. That is not a bad desire. But what happens is we try to meet that need with competition. Like Haman, we look around us. With the, with the math of comparison. And we run the numbers. And we run them again. And we run them again. And we run them again. And we can never get enough. We can never prove enough worth. We can never prove enough significance. We can never get our lives to add up to the honor that we desire for ourselves. Pride is an unsolvable equation. And maybe we respond to that like Haman with a false superiority. Anger, attack, boasting. Maybe we do that. Some of us do that. But a lot of of the other of us, we respond to that unsolvable equation, not with false superiority, but with a false inferiority. We can give you all the reasons why everyone else is better than us. We can explain how terrible we are. There is an unhealthy self-deprecation, even self-loathing. But it's still pride. Because self is at the center. That yawning emptiness. Emptiness is still ruling our lives. We still have this insatiable appetite for affirmation. We're still running the numbers and coming up with a deficit. Pride is an unsolvable equation in our need for affirmation, our need for significance. But why is it bad? Why is pride such a bad thing? Why do we name this as an evil? Why do we name it as a sin? Well, because pride isn't only math, it's also history. Did you catch Haman's identity there at the beginning of chapter 3? Did you catch that he's not a Persian? He is Haman the Agagite. It's another way to say that he is an Amalekite. And the Amalekites were ancient enemies of the people of God in the Old Testament. In fact, maybe you remember the Exodus story. God rescues his people from slavery and oppression in Egypt. And he's leading them to freedom and flourishing in this promised land. Well, right after they escaped Pharaoh and the Egyptian army, the people of Israel, they were in the desert. And they are very vulnerable. They don't have a trained army. They don't have enough food. They don't have enough water. And they are almost immediately attacked. Taken advantage of in their very vulnerable position. And who is the enemy in that attack? It's the Amalekites. It's the ancestors of Haman. Haman is continuing the ancient tradition of opposing God's Own heart. You see, God's desire, his design was to rescue and to bless the people of Israel so that through him, through them, he could rescue and bless the entirety of creation. That was a threat to the Amalekite agenda. And so they attacked. And Haman continues that attack all these years later in the story in the book of Esther. Because pride isn't just competition with others at its heart, it is competition with God. Pride isn't competition with others at its heart. It is competition with God. It's a competition that stretches further back than the Exodus story. It goes all the way back to the garden with the serpent saying, did God really say? Adam and Eve, if you will eat this fruit, your eyes will be open and you will become like God's yourself. You see, when the desire for significance becomes the ultimate driving force of our life. When we go after that significance by our own design, our own plan, then we usurp the place of God and we oppose his heart to our own harm and to the harm of the people around us. To say, I want affirmation and I'm going to get it my way. Is to oppose God's intention for life, for you, and for the people around you. Pride is so destructive because it shifts our center of gravity from where it should be. You see, we were made, we were meant to be grounded in what God says. And in what God wants. That's supposed to be our gravity. That's supposed to be where we put our feet. The direction in which we walk. But pride takes out that ground. And it opens up an unfillable hole. It opens up. It's like a black hole in space. It doesn't have a floor. It's just gravitational pull. And that... Endless hunger for affirmation, that endless hunger for significance. It just pulls the light and life out of everything that comes close to it. Pride is a pit without a bottom. And it pulls the life of everything that comes near to it. Because it takes away the ground on which we should stand. We elevate the good desire for affirmation to an ultimate motivation for our lives. And so we usurp God and we oppose his heart. Let me give you two areas of diagnosis. Being able to see this destructive force in your own life. Two areas. First, criticism. How do you respond to criticism? Do you explode? Do you explode with self-justification? With excuses? With an attack on the critic? Or do you implode? Do you implode with self-hatred? With an unhealthy self-deprecation? Pride is in both of those responses. Pride is involved in both of those responses and doesn't allow us to receive criticism and grow from it. Second area of diagnosis, unacknowledged accomplishment. How do you respond when you do something good and no one notices? Do you manipulate the compliment? Uh, You notice the kitchen is clean? I wonder how that happened. Or do you stew in resentment at the people who haven't noticed you, the people who haven't celebrated you? Pride is involved in both of those responses. That is the unsolvable equation of your need For affirmation. Now, now that we're feeling all really beat down, uh, you know, I think if we respond honestly to any of those questions, we have to say, yeah, I'm sick. I caught that bug. So what's the remedy? What do we do? How do we respond to this? This very deceptive but powerful force Well, let's look back to Haman's narrative and see not only pride's destructiveness, but let's see pride's destruction. This story is a classic of poetic justice, full of these beautifully balanced reversals. Let's notice a few of them in the life of Haman. His fury that Mordecai will not bow down to him. What does that become? We read it in chapter 7. It becomes him bowing down to the cousin of Mordecai. He falls down before Esther. And all of a sudden the king is furious at him. The ring by which he seals the plan for the destruction of the Jewish people. That ring is given to Esther. And is the, the ring with which she seals the plan for their rescue. The gallows that Mordecai builds execu—that Haman builds for the execution of Mordecai. Those are the gallows on which Haman dies. Those are the gallows on which he is executed. There's another one we didn't read. It's in chapter 6. It's a funny story. The king couldn't sleep at night. He had insomnia. And so he gets up and he has the records of his administration read to him. And he's reminded that Mordecai saved his life by exposing an assassination plot. But Mordecai hadn't been rewarded. Unacknowledged accomplishment. Mordecai hadn't been rewarded for saving the king's life. And that was not okay in the Persian Empire. And so the king is thinking about how do I reward Mordecai? And in that moment of thinking and discovering, Haman walks in. And the king says, there's Haman, there's my counselor. Haman, tell me. I'm really excited about someone. I'm really grateful for someone. How should I celebrate this? How should we respond to the, the man in whom the king delights, the text says. Haman, in his pride, thinks, longs for the king to be talking about him. And so he says, I have an idea, king, you should, you should allow that man to be king for a day. You should give him the crown, the robes, and the adoration of the crowds. And the king says, great idea. Do that for Mordecai. And so Haman has to lead the celebration for his nemesis. His plan for exaltation becomes the plan For his humiliation, his plot for the destruction of others becomes the plot for his own destruction. How does that happen? Why does that poetic justice happen? Well, because while Haman is in the story, Haman is not the one telling the story. Remember that little strange uh, scene we read in chapter 3 where it talks about Haman and the king throwing dice? Uh, They're called poor or lots. Uh, This wasn't a game. This was a method of decision making in the ancient world. And it wasn't about chance. It was about divining the will of the gods. And so there are all these decisions that have to be made in the kingdom. And they're throwing these dice, making those decisions Trusting that the gods are revealing, revealing their will through those lots. And that method is the one by which Haman decides the date for his genocide. But it's interesting, there's a time stamp on that scene. The text tells us that the king and Haman, they were doing this when. They were doing it in the first month of the year, the month of Nissan. Do you know what happens during that month, every year in the Jewish calendar? Passover. That month, every year in the Jewish calendar, is the time when the Jewish people remember God's rescue of them from slavery in Egypt. Not only that, the the time when, when this edict goes out, this edict announcing the annihilation of the Jewish people, it goes out on the eve of Passover. So it seems like on the surface of this story, it seems like Haman and his gods are overturning that festival. A festival that celebrates rescue and life. They're making it a, a festival of death and destruction. They're overturning that story, that festival. That's what it seems like on the surface. But is that what happens? No, that's not what happens. Why? Why? Because Haman's in the story, but he's not telling the story. Who's telling the story? Well, the God of the Passover. The God of the Passover is telling the story. And when it seems like Passover is being overturned, God is actually retelling that narrative for his people. He is reasserting the meaning of that narrative feast in the life of his people in the Persian empire. He is at work for their rescue for their freedom for their life. And so when they name the festival that celebrates the, the events of Esther what do they name that festival? It's Purim or Purim. They say you see those lots where it looks like Haman and his gods are planning something against us What they are actually doing is they are defining, they are divining the will of the God who is for us, who is at work for our life, for our rescue. You see, pride is destroyed when God tells the story. Pride is destroyed When God tells the story, because he's telling a bigger story than the one just in Esther. And that story is one in which the proud are demoted and the humble are promoted. That's the story of the Bible. Pride is destroyed when God tells that story. Do you know that diamonds aren't that rare anymore? There are lots of them, and it's easy to find more if you need to. But diamonds are still very expensive, aren't they? Diamonds are still very valuable, aren't they? Why? Not because they are rare, but because of the narrative told about them, the story we tell about them. We tell stories about diamonds that are stories of romance, that are stories of luxury. So their value isn't determined by their rarity. Their value is determined by their narrative. The same is true of us. Our value isn't determined by our rarity, our ability to prove that we are better than everyone else. Our value, our worth is determined by the story told about us. Pride is attempting to tell that story of value on our own. It's attempting to tell that story with our own accomplishments, with our own competencies. Humility is letting God tell the story about us. Humility is letting God tell the narrative that defines and establishes our worth. Why would we do that? Why would we receive God's story rather than tell our own? Well, because he has definitively and ultimately retold the Passover. He has retold a story of rescue, of freedom, of life. He has retold, he has reasserted the Passover in his son, Jesus. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus didn't escape the gallows. Jesus was hung on the gallows that our pride deserves. Why? So that pride could be defeated in us without destroying us. You see, the hope of the gospel isn't that you are not like Haman. No, the hope of the gospel is that you are like Haman, but your pride can be destroyed without you being destroyed like Haman. Jesus set aside the robes of his heavenly majesty, and he dressed as a slave. Why? Well, So that he could free us from our slavery to pride. And dress us as kings and priests of God. Humility isn't the loss of dignity, it is the recovery of true. It is God restoring us into that glory and honor of being made and remade into His image. Humility isn't the loss of significance. It isn't the loss of worth. It isn't the loss of honor and respect. It is finding all of those deep needs in the right place. It is to be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. Humility is silencing the math of comparison with the voice of God saying, you are my beloved. You are the ones whom I am rescuing, redeeming, and renewing. Pride isn't saying I'm terrible. or Excuse me, humility isn't saying I'm terrible. It is receiving the message of, of the Passover. That yes, I am broken and I am sinful, but in Jesus I'm being redeemed and renewed and restored. Humility isn't denying our need for affirmation, it is going with that hunger here. And God's saying, Here is the body and the blood of my son, the Passover lamb, for your life. A way for you to come to me, to know me, to be known by me. That's humility. We should be able to join the the great poet Gerard Manley Hopkins. Talking about himself, he said, this jack, which means like an ordinary, insignificant man. This jack, this joke, poor potsherd, match patchwood, immortal diamond. He was able to look at himself and say, insignificant, inestimable value, joke, immortal diamond. How could he say that? Well, because he was talking about who he was in Jesus, and he was talking about the resurrection, and he says at the trumpet blast, I will become what Christ is because he became what I am. I will become what Christ is since He became what I am. Christ humbled Himself so that you could be exalted, restored as the image of God. And true humility is to receive that story as a story about you The story that God is telling in your life. Let's pray.